Welcome back for episode 3 of the second season of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. I'm Gary Naylor. Our guests this week are Derek Pringle, former cricketer and freelance cricket writer. Hello, Derek. Hi, Gary. Rob Smythe, freelance cricket writer. Hello, Rob Smythe. (laughs) Hi, Gary. How are you doing? And for the first time, Rob Steen, author and fully qualified hack of 40 years standing, but mostly sitting. Hello, Rob Steen. Hello, Gary. (laughs) So um, that's the first of, of my references to... Rob's Smythe and Steen, which will no doubt trip me up throughout the rest of the uh, pod. But before we begin, if I can say a big thanks to our sponsor, Mark Selleck of Anderton Law, who makes all this happen. And a thanks too for your tweets, including kind words from Rob Kelly, The Hunter, sounds a bit frightening that one, and Dave Gibb, amongst others. Remember, you can tweet us at CrickShow80s90s. And we'd be delighted to hear your views and comments. This week, we're doing a hundred and changing formats. We start with a look at the 1989 Nehru Cup, a tournament that looked more important in the rearview mirror than it did at the time. And in our second innings, we're choosing our Neely Men 11s, the ones that didn't quite make it, or in one or two instances, barely got a go at all. So that's the format for this week. And we're beginning with the Nehru Cup. Now, Rob Smythe, you wrote an article about this uh, largely forgotten tournament on the occasion of its 30th anniversary. So do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, what was actually happening and the format of the Nehru Cup back in 1989? Yes, so it uh, it took place in India. It was a six-team tournament. At the time, there were only seven test-playing nations. New Zealand weren't included I couldn't find absolute verification, but I'm pretty sure they weren't invited, which seems a bit harsh. Um, it was ostensibly to celebrate the 100th, or not the 100th birthday, the 100 years since the birth of Jawaharlal Nehru, and I apologise if I pronounced that wrong, who was India's first Prime Minister after independence. It was also to help his grandson, who was Prime Minister at the time and had an election upcoming. That didn't work, but anyway... And that was the kind of context, really. It was, they, they didn't quite get the branding right, though. I actually found six, at least six different names for it. So the Nehru Cup, the Nehru Centenary Tournament, the MRF World Series, MRF being the tyre factory who created the Pace Foundation that kind of changed India and world cricket, Nehru Trophy, Nehru Tournament, uh, and just the MRF. So that, that was the context, really. It was the f- I'm pretty sure it's the first, apart from World Cup, tournament to have at least six teams. So... It was a kind of forerunner of what would become the Champions Trophy. Although, weirdly, there was a Champions Trophy going on at the time in Sharjah, which involved three or four teams. It was a, it was a bit of a mess, really. It, it, West Indies of Australia weren't going to go in the first place, so they had to bring the tournament forward. Tournament started. England played Sri Lanka in the first game, while the other teams were still in Sharjah playing the Champions Trophy. So it was a bit of a mess in that sense. But actually, there was some pretty good cricket, and um, and it had quite a profound impact in the long and medium term. Yeah, and we'll come to that impact uh, towards the end of the discussion. Now, now, Derek, you were there, weren't you? Um, what was it like on the inside? Did it feel haphazard? Did it feel like it was a portent of things to come? Or was it uh, still quite tricky getting round India uh, in the 80s? It probably was a bit tricky getting round India. Certainly, um, some of those internal airlines that uh, were being used then were, you know, you got on the board with, with great trepidation, some of those airplanes. Um and we tended to be that that series um, 
I noticed that we only played in one major city. I think Delhi, we started in Delhi, had a few warm-up games there. And after that, we were in sort of outposts of cricket. So that made it quite interesting because uh, sometimes you had to get the train to some of those places, no, being no um, airstrip nearby. It didn't feel that tacked on. I, I guess um, a few of us had played in that tournament that I just mentioned in Sharjah before and, and, and you know, just ready to go. I mean, pretty much um, we just had a, a six-test Ashes series, but um, I don't think any of us were moaning that we were overworked at the time because, you know, we all wanted to earn the money, I suppose. You say you're travelling by train. Um, in my mind's eye, I've got you kind of like backpackers with your coffins loading them into the, the luggage compartment and then... And then sort of a, a six-hour rickety train across uh, countryside and then arriving in a, in a small town to be met by uh, a porter and so on. Was, was it was it that kind of caricature or was it a little bit more sophisticated than that? Or? Have you been to India, Gary? I haven't. I've been to Sri Lanka, so I, I know a little well, of, of, well, in India, of subcontinental got, they, ways. They haven't got, got labour problems in India. I mean, we don't <laughs> take our own bags anywhere. So you've got loads of people to carry them for you and put them on the train and pack them and unpack them, etc. Etc. On another trip, um, when I was, I was in India with England schools, which is in the previous decade, we pulled into a station uh, and uh, there was a guy sitting on the platform and these big bundles of blankets and they just chucked them on. Uh, and those were what we had to sleep under. So they were sitting on the station platform you know, as, as we pulled in. The second match of the tournament, England are up against the Australians uh, on the, the back of the walloping in the ashes in the summer of '89. And um, there's a story about Wayne, Wayne Larkins uh, giving Graham Gooch a bit of stick about uh, Terry Alderman being a threat. Uh, were you party to any of that banter? Uh, dare I say the word, Derek? Well, well <laughs> I don't remember him giving Gucci any stick about it because Gucci was the captain after all. You don't give the captain too much stick. But um, Wayne, absolutely. I mean, he blitzed Australia. That, that ground uh, is in the middle of town. They don't play there anymore. But... Um, the ball swung around a little bit. It certainly did when we bowled. And Australia didn't look like they were going to get a very big total until Adam Border came in and went crazy. And it's hit one ball off, off Angus Fraser, out clean out of the stadium. It's, it's probably the biggest six I think I've ever seen in my life. It, it was massive. And um, just to, to digress slightly, um, Gucci sort of went up to Gus and said, um, do you bowl a slower ball, Gussie? Because he was, he was tucking into <laughs> Gussie's normal balls. And Gussie went, No. What do you think I ought to start? <laughs> <laughs> but Larkins absolutely smashed Australia everywhere. I mean, I've not seen anybody outscore Gucci two to one in any form of cricket, but Wayne did that day. And uh, when he came off, uh, I think it was out just before the end, but the game was essentially won. He just came in and everyone was patting him on the back and he just went, Terry <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, the, the the border innings is quite extraordinary for its its time. I mean, I'll, I'll ask you, uh, Rob Steen. I mean, we we watched a lot of cricket in the uh, in the seventies and eighties, and you just didn't see batsmen scoring eighty four off forty four balls, did you? Well, that's very very true. However, I must admit these kind of games, it, it's all a bit of a blank to me. I've got to make that confession. Um, there were I can't remember any of them being televised. To be honest with you, Sky hadn't. You know, their, their first winter covering it was about to come up in nine. Um, 90, well, that following year, wasn't it? So we weren't getting the coverage. And I kind of had that 
I don't know, maybe cynicism about the whole process. Not necessarily that tournament, but I can't say that tournament particularly registered with me. So I never saw that border innings um, until you'd mentioned it just now, to be honest. I've never even heard of it. <laughs> However, I have, I have looked at a lot of footage of one-day cricket from the 80s in particular over the last few weeks, just to kind of get, get ready for all of this. And really, the scoring rates were <laughs> lamentably slow by comparison with what we've got now. I mean, if you were getting 250 or 50 overs, that was bloody good. You know, I don't know how Prem sees it, but I mean, from my memory, that was a good innings. That was strong. 300 was unthinkable back then. So 84 or 40 odd balls, clearly astonishing innings. Well, I, 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 can add, I, can add, I can add something to that because uh, I think it's the, the first time that I'd noticed it. Actually, I mean, Alan Border played for us. Now, you see, Australians play a bit of baseball. And, you know, they all talk about adopting the baseball stance now. Well, that's exactly what Border did. He just showed the bowler his stumps, got low, and the bat was held almost almost horizontally. And, it, you know, if it was in the arc, it just disappeared. Yeah, I mean, that was my memory of it. And to just back up uh, Rob's point there, I was looking at the uh, semi-final here, India against West Indies, and Kirtley Ambrose's figures as India were setting a target. Kirtley Ambrose, 8.5 overs, 2 for 13. <laughs> I, I mean, it was, it was the days when if the ball wasn't there to be hit, it wasn't hit. So <laughs> if, you, if you bowled a decent line and length and nobody bowled one better than Kirtley Ambrose, the kind of uh, prevailing orthodoxy was to knock it back from where it came and, and try and have a go at somebody else. Not, uh, not quite true. Not quite not true. Not quite Gary. true. I'd, Go on. I'd, 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 well, I'd, I'd just try and defend some of the bats of that era. Defend. They may they may not have hit many boundaries, but they work the ball for singles. So yeah. That, that's the great that's the great art that's gone out of the game in one day cricket now because they either stop it or look for a boundary. I think I, I, they, they just don't get many yeah, singles these days, or yeah, certainly I mean, twos. You know, to back that up, I mean, if you go back to even a figure like um, Inzuma Muhak, who wasn't the greatest runner between the wickets, as we all know, if you go to his figures um, in the 1992 World Cup semi-final and final for that matter, but mostly the semi-final, which he kind of won for Pakistan, you know, he was able to work the ball around as well as hit the boundaries. And, you know, you just don't see that quite now. <laughs> No. I, I'm just wondering, and uh, Rob Smythe, you might know, um, was this tournament played with the fielding restrictions in circles? Because it, it's around the time that that sort of thing started to come in, along with other more, if you like, artificial uh, restrictions in one-day cricket. I have absolutely no idea. So I know <laughs> they, they were in place for 92, weren't they? Because you people yeah. Great Batch and Beefy at opening. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. We, we, had, we had fielding restrictions in the 82-3 Ashes series over really? Australia. Yeah, I mean, they've been, they've been around a long time. Yeah, I think probably I'm thinking of things like the different power plays and stuff like that. Cause they, Didn't they have were... a new ball at no. each end, though. Didn't yeah. have a new ball at each end. Yeah. Only, only one new ball. No, and, and, it no power and it was red. And it was red. There were definitely no power plays back then. Definitely. Not. Yeah, and there weren't many pinch hits. I mean, India had Chris Srikant, who was kind of naturally attacking, but... And I suppose it obviously England had Gucci and Larkins and everyone, but I don't think they had kind of people who were pushed up for that purpose, like no, Jason I mean, Rio or Great Batch. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say Great Batch comes on in '92. That, that Great New Zealand's and New Zealand weren't invited anyway. Mind you, pinch the, the idea of pinch hitting was was not new either, because if you re- recall, um, Ian Botham went and opened the innings in '86-'7 in a lot of the one-day games there, particularly in the Perth Challenge. Did he? Yeah, no, I don't remember but, that. No, and. 
successfully so uh, on occasion. Very successfully, which is why which is why I persuaded Gucci could do it again in the eighteen ninety two World Cup. And it didn't work out quite so well, except against Australia. But, but again, I, I want to ask Pring because you you were there, mate. I mean, all those tournaments that were taking place outside, it, not just it is in Asia primarily, but you know all those Sharjah games which kind of left a really sour taste in your mouth and felt that, you know, something was brewing on the, you know, the match-fixing front. There was suspicion around that time. I mean, did you hear anything being talked about back then? I don't know if there was suspicion at the time, Rob. I think it's a hindsight thing. I, I don't recall anyone thinking, oh, that's a bit dodgy. Well, I, well, OK, the reason I say this is because I remember at that time I just started at the Independent and in the summer of 1990, I think it was, I did the first idea for a kind of a, a world championship test and one day internationals and that one of the prime reasons for doing that was my my suspicions which I, I i'm sure i wasn't the only person who felt this at the time that what was going on in Sharjah in particular might not be above board and that the icc had to take greater control over the international game and that was what was behind it and wisdom followed a little bit a little later for that ran it two or three times or something like that not saying i got the uh, calculations right by any stretch of the imagination but the point was i wanted to make find a way of getting through the suspicion about non icc governed events well, maybe you as, you as a journalist look to these things more closely. I can assure you those Sharjah events just washed over me as a player. I, I didn't pay any attention to them, unless I was playing. I didn't pay any attention whatsoever. No, no fair enough, fair enough. It was just, yeah. it's just something, you know, it does go back. Yeah, I mean, Rob, Rob Smythe made the, the point, uh, didn't you, Rob, that we, we didn't see these on television. And so it was when uh, the Cricketer or Wisdom Cricket Monthly sort of dropped the other side of the letterbox. And almost every month you sort of opened it up and there was a, a tournament that you hadn't really noticed at all because this was before Crick Info or certainly before Crick Info was, was a, a big presence on online. And uh, you read about these things and they seemed incredibly glamorous, but you, you couldn't tell one from another. Is that, is that, was that your experience, Rob? Yeah, it was just kind of teletext newspapers and WCM as it was at the time. You're right. It seems so weird now to think you wait three or four weeks to get a really comprehensive report of something, but that's kind of how the world was. It was still fresh and interesting, even though it was almost a month earlier. You didn't get yeah. many tournaments, though, with six teams involved, did it? I think that's the first one, apart from the World Cup. I think it's the first one. There have been a couple with five. There's, there was a weird one in Australia. and had five teams and five games, which I, I don't know how you... Five games in a whole tournament, which is mental. But this is the first one with six. We should say about the schedule as well, actually. I think there was something like 18 games in 18 days, which doesn't seem that much. But when you factor in all the travel across India then obviously it becomes a, a bit of a slog. I think one of the West Indies teams said they had cricket lag. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the, Gary, in the build-up to uh, our, our campaign, as it were, we played a couple of warm-up games in Delhi, and one of those was against uh, an Air India eleven, and that's where we first set sight of uh, Sachin Tendulkar and, and uh, Katrina Cambly. Oh. Yes. And they, both, and they both got half-centuries against us, but, I mean, we, we got 300-odd. I mean, they didn't really pursue the total they got back to 200 but uh, both those guys got and that's where that's where the man with the long the world record fingernails was as well <laughs> he turned he turned up to steal everyone's thunder was he picking the scene was he was he well, I, I tell you what they're all wrapped in tape because they're so fragile but they're about certainly about six feet long is my memory he looked pretty freakish he was in the Guinness Book of records wasn't he i think so yeah i mean that, that's what they claimed anyway anyway he sort of came along and just, you know, he looked like a, a holy man, really, you know, long hair, what have you. He was all treated with great reverence. He had about nine minders. 
Well, let's let's just jump forward to the the other semi final, so to speak, England against uh, Pakistan. Now, you played in this match, uh, Derek, and I uh, did one of only two games I got. I didn't realise I only played two games. It felt like more. It felt like more. <laughs> now it was rain restricted to thirty overs aside, and England make a make a, a handy hundred and ninety four at uh, well over a run of ball. Robin Smith getting fifty five, but that Pakistan eleven looks. Very strong indeed. The bowling Their bowling's attack. incredible, isn't it? Well, let's let's list the bowlers. England scored at six and a half and over against Imran Khan, Wasim Akram, Akram Raza, Wakar Yunus coming on a second change, Mushtaq Ahmed, and Abdul Qadir. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good going over a run of ball against that lot. Thank goodness it rained, I say. <laughs> <laughs> Meant the pitch wasn't quite as dry. I mean, if it had been a good dry Asian pitch, I think we, we might have struggled a bit with the, the, those two leg spinners. But um, in the build-up to that, though, the night before was Diwali celebration, so none of us slept, but I suppose it was the same for both sides. <laughs> Firecrackers going off, but um, I'm amazed they could party like they did because it did rain quite significantly during the night as well, So, which is why there was a delayed start. Well, uh, I can promise you it won't uh, stop the Firecrackers in Tooting tonight because it's Diwali but, tonight in Tooting. It's well, always a bit that's lively. Where we- that's where we first saw um, uh, Nasser Hussein. I think that was his um, only game, I think, of the of the tournament. And uh, it was a late change because I think Jack Russell had, had kept wicket throughout and then uh, the semi-final was dropped and uh, Alex Stewart kept wicket so we could play the extra batsman. And he batted at five, Nasser, and um, he got a bit bogged down, as I recall, and uh, he ran down the pitch to Abdul Qadir, changed his mind, sort of laid back to cut it. It was the googly, hit him on the pad, but he was at least two yards down the pitch and he was given out LBW. And of course, it was a shocking decision, but you needed a you needed a tow truck to get him off the pitch. <laughs> Having scored two for 12 in an innings that was going at more than a runner ball, perhaps it was an act of mercy on the part of the umpire. So He didn't uh, see it like that. I bet he didn't. <laughs> I bet he didn't. So we, we Pakistan and uh, West, West Indies. Indies progressed to the final. And uh, West Indies bat first, make 273 for five. Desmond Haynes, not out 107 there. I mean, it was a pretty strong West Indies side as well, although some of those players are obviously on the the way down, uh, whereas others are on the the way up. And then um, Pakistan chased them down with um, a handy middle order of uh, Salim Malik and uh, Imran Khan. Rob Steen, am I right in thinking that is a super strong Pakistan side that, that won this tournament? Well, I, I think so. And I think if you look at Pakistan during that period, um, the 80s and 90s, they were absolutely superb. If we'd had a world championship back then, there was a period when, when Pakistan would have been ahead of the West Indies. And I, and I think it, it's staggering the amount of talent. And, and if you look back, and I did these stats for <laughs> thinking ahead to our fantasy eleven during the 80s and 90s, England did not, between 1988 and 2000, England did not tour Pakistan. And, you know, we know there was political problems at the time. Nevertheless, I don't think anyone was queuing up, shall we say, at the TCCB or the ECB to arrange tours to Pakistan. Um, what was your feeling, Pring, about all of that, not playing Pakistan away? Well, as I'd stopped being picked for overseas tours, <laughs> I didn't give it too much thought. Rob, but, you know, um, it, it, I think I think it's probably, you know, in hindsight, pretty scandalous. 
there's no doubt they were. I've always said that uh, you know, in terms of raw talent, Pakistan are right up there with with the West Indies, really, and and they always have incredible players, and and you know, as a player, you want to pit yourself against those kind of players, and and I think as a spectator, you want to see those kind of players, and uh, it was it was a terrible thing. Both of them had the quote, didn't he? Was it about Pakistan where he wouldn't want to send his mother-in-law there or something? Yeah, that was the one. That was the one. But those were the days when they stayed in government, inverted commas, rest houses. There were no proper hotels in some of the places they were putting. And I suppose it was was hard work and, you know, a bit of a culture shock for some people. I mean, when I went to, on that England schools tour to India, we didn't didn't stay in, uh, in fact, funny enough, in Hyderabad, you know where where the, the Nehru Cup game was played. We we stayed in a dormitory underneath the stadium, <laughs> and and you know I, I've been to I've been to boarding school, and <laughs> so the guys who've been to boarding school kind of got over it. The other guys went, "What the hell is going on here?" So and it was far, it was a bit grim. It could be a bit grim. Let's put it that way. A far cry from uh, from Douglas Jardine going on the tiger hunts with the. Uh, Local uh, Maharaj. (laughs) Well, we'll we'll finish this uh, section on the Nehru Cup by going back to Rob Smythe because it it, it was a this tournament was important of things to come, not just in terms of six uh, nations uh, playing in the tournament and a a real multinational precursor of Champions Trophy, but also Pakistan's talent coming through in readiness for the next edition of the World Cup. Yeah, it's worth just a quick note on how they actually won it. So um, Wazim Akram came to the crease and he did four of three balls. Viv Richards was bowling last over because he'd bowled the quicks out because Pakistan were cruising, trying to get West Indies back in the game. So four of three, Imran Khan took a single, three of two. He said to Wazim, basically just whatever you do, run and get me on strike for the last ball. Wazim said, yep, yep. And they just belted his first ball for six. So it's a hell of a way to win a tournament. But yeah, I think it had two impacts really. One... Imran spoke a lot about the impact on Pakistan. I mean, Brian Clough used to always say that the most important trophy he won at Forest was the Anglo-Scottish Cup, just because of the, it was the first trophy they won. It gave the players a taste, but also kind of changed the, somehow changed the pathways in their brain. You know, it makes you more likely to win down the line. And I think Imran always related this with the World Cup win in 92. I think the bigger impact, I was reading something in India today, like a review of the tournament a week after it happened, that it said, Perhaps this tournament has shown that perhaps one day India could become the world capital of cricket. And I think that certainly happened. So I think that this was the first kind of major, apart, they'd had the World Cup, but this was more of a kind of another way, another way of kind of claiming territory of world cricket. And um, I think probably those were the two big impacts, really. And actually, just one thing on England, this was the start of um, the Graham Gucci era as captain, which was barring games against Australia and barring the end, was pretty successful. So I think it was quite important in that sense. Obviously, Derek will know more, but it was before the West Indies tour. I think most of the squad were in both. although I think Derek and one other weren't. But anyway, so there was a lot of kind of preparation for that. I think it was more fitness work. Is that fair? I know the team huddle was born and things like that. Um, so actually, it had a decent impact for England as well, in more in the short term, though. Well, I would say it's, it's the moment when uh, the, the, what I call the maverick era in cricket, where you had just basically left your own devices, preparation-wise, turned into coach culture. Yeah. Uh, and because we turned up to what we thought were going to be you know, normal nets at the Delhi Hockey Stadium, only to be told, no, lads, no nets today. We're running around that 400-metre track and <laughs> getting timed. 
And of course, you know, to the old stages like Wayne Larkins, Nick Cook and me, and we thought, oh, blimey. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hot as Hades as well. But that's uh, that was it. And you're right, Robert. It was a sort of Gucci with one eye on the West Indies because he was tired of losing to them. You know, we got to, we got to get fitter and we got to get tougher. So um, I think we we can conclude our look at the Nehru Cup. Really, that summary there suggests that although it was held in the 80s, it was pretty much a, a, a tournament that had uh, more than one foot in the 90s. So we turn to our discussion of the nearly men's 11. All four of us have chosen a team to play test cricket for England in the 80s and 90s, but comprising the players who didn't quite get their chance, or if they did get their chance, didn't quite make it. So that's our brief. It's pretty broad, and we've got some pretty broad selections, uh, one of whom uh, shares that name. And we're going to go to that 11 now, because I'll ask Rob Steen, to name his 11 and focus particularly on the batting. OK, well, I'll kick off with the 11. Um, openers, Ali Brown and Chris Broad. Number three, Clive Radley. Number four, Malachi Loy. Number five, Neil Fairbrother. Number six, and captain Dermot Reeve. Number seven, and wicketkeeper Jack Richards. Number eight, Martin Bicknell. Number nine, Robert Croft. Number 10, Dean Headley. And number 11, Norman Cowans. So, number one with a bullet, Ali Brown. Also known as Lordy a.k.a. the self-effacing KP. The player I feel most strongly about in terms of squandered potential. As his then-captain Mark Butcher once admitted to me, there are days when you despair, but those are far outweighed by the number of times he makes your jaw drop and wins us matches. Sorry didn't win very often, Rob. Sorry to introduce, <laughs> interrupt you. How often did a sorry win? Anything? <laughs> But come on, how handy could he have been in an era when the vast majority of English batsmen were too scared of failure to contemplate aggression of any channelled sort? Trouble was, first impressions took root. When Simon Wilde reported in the Times on his one-day international debut and likened him to a clown, everyone's first impressions took root, and I'm afraid nothing changed. So, by way of balancing, here's Robert Croft on that stupendous... 268 in a 50-over game against Glamorgan at the Oval in 2006. He said to me, the last innings I saw where a batsman pierced the field like that was when Brian Lara made 147 against us for Warwickshire shortly after his 375 against England. I tried to stay one stop ahead of him with field placings, but he kept middling everything. Even if one boundary hadn't been so short, I don't think any of his sixes would have been caught. It got to the stage where bowlers and fielders were almost smiling. No matter what he tried, we tried. He had an answer. Batting uh, primarily... OK, all right, all right. I was just going to give the first-class figures here, man. 17,000 first-class runs at almost 43, 4,700s, including 295 not out after coming in at 25 for three against a Leicester attack led by Jimmy Orman, De Freitas, Kumble and Chris Lewis. Only one other batsman in the match reached 50. To me, it's a sad, perhaps even tragic case of image drowning facts. Go on, say what you want to well, say. Well, I, I remember seeing Alistair Brown in a Sunday game at the Oval uh, against Lancashire, and um, he was out for 60, and I think the scoreboard read 62 for one. It wasn't that he monopolised the strike, he just monopolised the scoring. <laughs> um, such clean hitting, and we, we, we didn't really see that in those days, the, the range hitting, the just hitting the ball into the pavilion over and over again. 
he was he was out for sixty, and you know we all we all cheered as Lancashire fans when he was out, but we were all a bit sad really because <laughs> because he, he appeared to be in that mood where he could do anything. What we're upset about image over facts. I was really surprised who his first class average is that high because. I always thought of him as a one-day player because of the 268, whatever it was, because of his century for England not long after being called a clown. Yeah, I'm genuinely surprised because that's a pretty... What was it, 43? Yep, nearly 43. That's, that's 17,000 runs. You're 4,700s. And it's not a, that's a paltry amount. That's really interesting and genuinely surprising, but... Where did he bat? How often did he open in first class? Cricket? Well, he didn't. He didn't often was open. Mixed, that is a fair point. Absolutely fair point. They went for a more solidity. Maybe Darren Bicknell up the top of the order. Um, I can't remember who else was. Scott but, Newman. But Scott Newman. He was pretty damn good as well. I think they saved him for the middle order, and he, you know, he did it in the middle order. Could have been a but say wag before say wag. Exactly. So exactly. You're, bat, you're batting him out of place, Rob. Then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want. I want a top of the order man. I want someone to announce themselves, basically, and say, <laughs> "F you," you know, we're going to bat our way. Oh, uh, oh. Maybe Larkins. Larkins probably could have should have been that man, but I don't think he was focused enough. Are, are they? Are these teams playing against modern sides? That's what I want to know. Uh, yeah, we didn't specify. <laughs> we didn't, well, we we must we must be wary of the of the time because it would be fun to talk like this for hours and hours. But we'll move on to uh, a man who who doesn't so much announce himself as announced the start of a test match more often than not these days. Uh, known as a a referee, but uh, Chris Broad was your second yeah. choice, Rob. Yeah, I mean, 25 tests, OK? I had it in my mind all along. That was the cut-off point, so quite fortuitously, he hit that deadline, as it were. All I can say is, what a waste of the cockiest opener, English opener of his generation. I mean, you know, the guy seemed incredibly arrogant. I remember speaking to him around the time he had made that shift from Gloucestershire to Nottinghamshire. And um, he was, you know, it was rare to find a county player with that kind of sense of self and that kind of confidence really oozing and you know he goes out there man of the series in the 86 87 ashes 300s all told in 44 innings he made 600s for england reached 50 on half a dozen more occasions but he was on the scrap heap barely two years after that ashes triumph now you know pring again i'm sure we'll back this up but after a few unseemly displays of dissent, shall we say, <laughs> I think, you know, he was, became personal grata. They, they, I think they had enough rock and rollers in the team. You know, another one, another guy who's not going to tug forelock. Uh, I, I think he was, you know, a convenient scapegoat, shall we say. You know, bicentenary test or centenary, whatever, when he what's his stumps down after being dismissed for 100-odd. You know, um, what he did in Pakistan. Um, you know, I, th- I think these things counted for a lot more than they should have done, put it that way. I never sh- I never saw him show any dissent when he played for Notts or, or Gloucestershire, uh, particularly. Um, yeah, he, he was he was a talented player, very solid. Some, someone um, I didn't mind bowling at, though, because if, if the ball was swinging, bring it back into him. But he was very strong off his pads, so he didn't want to get it too close to his pads. Other than that, I, I think... He had an appetite for runs, um, and that's always a good thing, I think, certainly as an opening batsman. Well, let's move to Clive Radley. I think the first day of Test cricket I saw, Clive Radley made a 137 at Old Trafford. That would be about 1977, I'm not absolutely certain. But a Middlesex man, uh, quick between the wickets, Rob. 
Yeah, I mean, you've, you've taken all the words out of my mouth already. <laughs> um, but I was just saying, I mean, it was... Was, he really, was he really at his best in the, the 1980s, though, Robert? And he just N- no, gone, no, over the, I, gone over the horizon? Well, that, that's exactly the point. I mean, to be fair, he takes part in another three men- Middlesex County Championship triumphs, which is says a lot for his durability. But I think at that time, it would only have been necessarily a short-term answer, perhaps. However, you know, he comes in at 34... Bats for nearly 11 hours to make 158 against New Zealand in his second test. Bats for another five hours to make 100 against Pakistan in the same year. Now, I know this is packer time, but these are still some pretty strong attacks England are facing at that time. Then he digs in for another six and a half hours to make 50s against New Zealand twice. And he's picked for the Winter Ashes Tour. And then he gets this horrible blow on the head in the first state game, which basically ends his involvement in the tour and he never gets picked at the highest level again. But I have that, this, this feeling that, you know, that number three position, he could have filled for a few more years. He was very fit. He was very determined. He ends up, you know, being a highly respected coach as well. So I think he, he had the wherewithal possibly to have gone on longer than, say, three or four more years. You know, I was struggling that much. Chris Tavare, to my mind, couldn't, should have been that number three. But he never quite did it for me. You know, he, he showed signs. But no one else really did that job with any consistency. So Radley was, frankly, the best of a lot of fairly poor options for me. Well, let's uh, move in our parallel universe to someone who might have a stroke named after him. We might be talking about the Loy scoop and not the Dill scoop in this parallel universe. So you've got uh, Malachi Loy in at four. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest with you, I have very little memory of him as a one-day player, but I did say a lot of him played championship cricket. And the first time I saw him, he was a teenager, I think 17, I think, playing a strong Essex second eleven. Um, and he made 170-odd. And it was like, you know, for me, love at first sight. You know, this guy could clearly play. The thing is, you know, with him, apart from his longevity and his ability to combine enterprise with you know, durability, I'll single out, you know, you know his biggest innings. 322 he made in just under 11 hours for North Hants against a Glamorgan attack led by Wacker and Steve Watkin. You know, no easy pickings. Only one other British cricketer has hit 300 or more in the third innings of a match, and his name was Grace. (laughs) Mal wasn't even deemed worthy of being a one-clap blunder, and that says only one thing to me. Who the hell did he offend? I really, (laughs) I've, I've never quite understood this one. Not a single chance at a test player. You know, he had a good first-class record for a number of years for two counties. And he went on a long time. And I just, there's something that doesn't fit right. I mean, you know, again, Pring, you're a contemporary to a degree. Did you have any perception of why he didn't get picked? He was just he was just starting off, I think, towards the end of my career. So we didn't pay much attention, I have to say. But uh, you're right. I think, I think he was a very, a very fine player. Um, I'm not sure why. You'd have to ask the selectors of the time. I mean, Rob, Rob Smythe, um, I've got memory of watching him hit a 100 against Australia in a one day. Do you recall that one? Yeah, that, that, that was the very strange CB series, wasn't it? Where yeah. England were an absolute shower and then ended up... John Buchanan <laughs> asked for tougher games and England ended yeah, up... Yeah, lost to Australia A or something, yeah? Yeah, no, no, that was the, this was um, when John Buchanan <laughs> said that Australia needed a greater test before the World Cup and England went up, ended up winning the tournament with a team full of people like Paul Nixon. <laughs> J- I remember Jamie Dalrymple taking a blind yeah. in the finals. Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mal Loy was in there. 
I think we've slog swept Brett Lee for six, didn't he? I think he um, might have done. Which puts him in a fairly small group, I'd imagine. I think he went on a couple of A tours, but not that many, actually. I, I remember my main memory from early his career, I remember reading an article saying that Mal Loy and Michael Vaughan were the two best young batsmen in England. I think it might even have been David Shepard who said that. But um, yeah, obviously didn't didn't develop from there. Or well, well I reckon the, the, way, the way selection was done back then is that the selectors would obviously go around the counties, have a look, and they'd probably have a chat with people. So whether, you know, someone at North Ends, you know, they'd probably have a chat with the captain or the coach about him, whether they and said a, something. And I suppose as we're seeing by all the different names of these teams, even in an era when they chopped and changed a lot, there was a hell of a lot of competition for, you know, winning one or two caps, never mind being a regular. The bowlers back then as well, we're getting the, you know, still getting the cream of the overseas bowlers. So mm. if you're making runs in county cricket at a consistent level at that time, that's someone like Loy and, you know, in a way the next guy I'm going to come on to, you'd have thought, you know, more opportunities. And, you know, when the tide is struggling as much as it was. Well, we'll move to the, the next guy. And I recall in early May uh, being at the Oval on a Saturday and... Yeah. Um, it was a single turn down in about the second over of the day and a, a bloke in a broad sort of uh, Lancashire accent said, oh, fair brother, wants, a un- uh, wants 300 today. And um, in the last over of the day, Neil Fairbrother hit a six into the president's box at, uh, in the Oval Pavilion and he got his 300 in a day. So Neil Fairbrother. Yeah, in many ways, I kind of looked at him as the Ali Brown of the North. You know, he again, he made that triple hundred. I was there at the Oval that day as well. And, you know, I know Ian Gregg made 291 in reply, which probably said a lot about the pitch. It was the day before, uh, the day before. Well, you know, the fact is Ian yeah. Gregg makes 291 <laughs> in the same match. So, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it is easy to get these things out of proportion. However, I still say 366 is a hell of an innings to play by anyone. He was the best England one-day finisher that I ever saw. Um, brilliant in the covers. But I don't think he was ever trusted long enough to be serious for long enough. In his one test innings of note, I went back and looked at this. He was in Chennai, that horror tour of 92-3. He makes, 90, he makes 83, sorry, the second highest score by an English specialist batsman in that series. Yet he was dropped for the next test and only play once more in Sri Lanka shortly afterwards. Now, yes, he had a weakness outside of Stump, and yes, it was regularly exploited, and 150 in, what, 15 test innings suggests the selectors probably got it right, but perhaps not. Just before that, the World Cup had just confirmed him as a star. And again, one can't help but wonder whether a central contract might have made him feel a little bit more a sense of belonging and able to fulfil the talent he clearly had in Test cricket. I think there are sliding doors with Fairbrother. There's quite a few, actually. So the first one, his debut, he only plays because Chris Broad is injured in 87. I think it's at Old Trafford against Pakistan. Goes out on a dank day at about 6.30-odd. Gets out fourth ball for naught, and then they said him Bruce French is a night watchman. Yes, absolutely. And he said he absolutely. never really re- fully recovered from that. He, he was then dropped for the next game because Broad was fit. There's another time, do you remember he got that glorious 100 against West Indies in 91 in a one day? Same day when Hick got 80 odd. And I think everyone thought he was going to get his chance in the test team then, but instead they picked Mark Rampakash, gave him his debut at number five. But I read, I, I can't remember where, but I read something in February that said he never quite got over that that naught basically. So he went on tour the following winter to Pakistan, got a few low scores. And from there, you're always kind of catching up. And even though he became, as you say, our best one day player, our best one day batsman, certainly finisher, I think he never, never felt comfortable after that. 
I know, and I think that, you know, go, you know, let's big up the, the central contracts thing. I think if you look at what's happened, you know, this century, the, that sense of security, that sense of belonging, the sense of, you know, a little bit of faith, you know, rather than one cast here, two tests here, dropped for no necessarily good reason, bad luck with bad light. All these things counted a lot more in those days, sadly. Yeah, you look at players who often might play eight tests, but that's in five distinct periods. So. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that's just, you can't, how can you ever settling with that I don't know my father uh, was a huge fan of Neil Fairbrother and whenever he came up in conversation when we were at the cricket or something he would just shake his head and he'd just say never quite had it for the tests did he never quite had it uh, he played he played 10 tests so he did he did get his chance but it was a as you say it was a strange period I just want to ask, ask Derek about it actually Derek was there a feeling amongst the players that this kind of level of caprice and fate was in play and and you know if you did just get that bit of bad luck then you know that might be it is that is that the way players thought yeah i don't think we 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 looked around at, uh, you know you'd obviously consider it if it was you involved but you know i, I never really sat there thinking oh goodness gracious neil fairbrother's unlucky because he's not being picked for the test team we were too busy playing cricket there's a lot of <laughs> cricket going on at the time um i just think that the powers that be uh, just thought he was a bit too loose for for test cricket and then you know he was a fine very very fine one day batsman and could have perhaps been a fine test player but they, they just considered it otherwise are there parallels with owen morgan just in terms of you know left hand did very good finisher but just a bit too loose outside off stump yeah of course of course in one day cricket rob um you know getting the ball down the third man is just a get off strike shot whereas yeah. in test cricket you'd do that you're out <laughs> it was a get out shot yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it was just that that sense of of calling it sometimes with fair brother i mean we we were all invested because we were lancashire fans and he was the the golden boy of, of lancashire at the time but you just looked at it and you're thinking, there's one going to gully here or third slip any moment now. And there it is. But his first so, class record was good, wasn't it? it was oh, his first class was, yeah. yeah. Obviously, test cricket is a level above. But... Yeah, and he did he, he did cash in on that season. It wasn't just the flatness of the pitch at the Oval. It was, it was that, a that Tiflix was ball, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And and we'll come to the the last player in uh, in the batting in, in your selection, uh, Rob Steen. And it's my captain as, as well, the... Uh, the Marmite Man himself, uh, Dermot Reeves. Yes, the Marmite Man. Yeah, I've forgotten that one. I remember actually being standing with him once um, during the Baseball World Series, I think, in the 90s, and having a bit of a chat with him for the first time. And, you know, he had a good sense of humour, but by that stage his career was it was on the back end of his career and he didn't quite know what to do next. And he just struck me as somebody who was almost out of kilter with everybody else. Now, I can't say I knew him. Um, again, Pre might well know him to a certain extent, so I can't really give much insight into the personality. But as a captain, I just thought, you know, much as I thought long and hard about James Whitaker, who had quite a number of the same qualities, as a player, I think, number one, Dermot Reeve brought a lot more to the table. He was very clever with the ball, enterprising with the bat. He was a daring tactician. He also had a rare blend of devilry that I'm sure got up a lot of very eminent noses. <laughs> but it might have reaped some dividends at the time when, you know, captaincy against such strong opposition required a bit more imagination, a little bit more courage, a little bit more aggression. You know, helpfully, he was a keen disciple of the old Adam Ant creed. Ridicule is nothing to be scared of. You know, he, he really did cock a snook at pretty much everything. But look at that Warwickshire team. Yes, he had Lara. Yes, he had Donald, I believe. Didn't hurt. But he had a lot of other players who weren't quite 
of that high class, shall we say, a bit like, you know, the Gloucestershire side that Mark Elaine was commandeering, but he had a bit more talent. And for me, he uttered the wisest one-liner I've ever heard from any team leader in any sport, coach, manager or captain. He was asked by an interviewer, I think it was in 94, after Warwickshire had won three titles in a single season, to single out the key to captaining cricketers. And he replied, work on their self-esteem. And it just seemed to be, you know, even whether you've got a Lara or you've got an Andy Moles, the fact remains is make them feel good about themselves, make them feel confident, make them feel daring. And I think that that worked so well for Warwickshire. And that, for me, would have made him a rather useful England captain at a time when their team was struggling and they needed something a little bit ingenious, perhaps, a little bit daring. And I don't think in the 90s that was in existence. Well, in that Warwickshire side, he was certainly the king of the wild frontier, if we're continuing <laughs> with the Adam and theme. Um, uh, Derek, did you come across uh, Dermot Reeve on the field? You obviously did in media centres and places like that. Of course, Gary, yeah. We, yeah. I played against him when he was at Sussex and Warwickshire. So, uh, I didn't know if he'd overlapped, but... Uh, yeah, he played, well, I mean, he, he, was, he, was no, he was never in a position of power when I played against ah. him. Uh, he was always uh, you know, one, of the, one of the ranks and... The trouble, uh, I don't know. I mean, Rob obviously likes Dermot Reeve, but I know plenty of people who don't. Yeah. Um, and I think I think his problem, he, he had a degree of self-obsession that um, was the kind of thing that was looked down upon in the Essex dressing room, so he wouldn't have fitted in very well there. And he was a bit of a chancer, I think. He, he was he was good in situations where he could gamble. That, that's when he, that's brought out the best in him. I don't think he was a guy who who you know showed great consistency in his own play. But in certain situations where the pressure was getting to other people, that's where he was good. As a manager in the workplace, you've always got awkward sods who can get things done. What you do is you manage them in order to get things done. But in sports teams, you're able to say, well, I'm not going to pick them. Perhaps it's a loaded question, but do you think with the likes of, of Dermot Reeve that, that there should be more of how do I get the most out of this difficult person rather than he's a difficult person, I'm not going to pick him. Well, he was the guy managing, I guess, when he was captain, and he was the difficult person, I suppose. I mean, I'm pretty sure Brian Lara loathed him. Yeah. Yeah, but I wouldn't have thought Brian Lara was the easiest person to get a hold of. No, exactly. I know which guy you got to pander to slightly. Though. <laughs> Who was the better captain? <laughs> Dermot Reeve no. or Brian Lara, I wonder. No idea. No idea, Rob. Well, I think we know that Brian Lara was not a good captain. And we know that uh, um, Reeve was a good captain. He went on strike so- a few times and got a bit of pay rise. I think the player. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we'll, we'll finish off the the batting with a few words from yourself, uh, Rob Smythe, about Dermot Reeve because he was a he was a one off, wasn't he? Yeah, the the thing I remember about him the most, apart from obviously the trophies and everything, is that I mean, he did think a hell of a long way outside the box. There was that game against I think it was Hampshire in '96 when they were trying to save it, and Raj Maru was bowling into the rough. And he would put forward, they'd drop his bats, and if he was caught off the glove, he yes. couldn't be out. Um, I think they um, they may have even changed the law after that. I'm they not did. Sure. They changed the law. Personally, I mean, I, I had to pick it all round as well. Obviously, I, I'm not I'm not sure about Reeve as a Test captain, but I would certainly think it'd have been worth a go as a one day captain, sort of around the mid '90s, maybe after that '96 World Cup. But yeah, that, probably that's the thing. It's just interesting. I mean, I, I've never met him, so I don't know what he's like. He clearly was good at managing certain people, but may, maybe there's something in. 
what Rob Steen said about the kind of relatively low key nature of the squad, apart from Brian Lara, maybe he worked with that group in a way he wouldn't have with others. I don't know. Clearly, he was very imaginative, and you know, just always something to commend. I guess we'll move to your very own Neely Man Eleven, uh, Rob. So if you can give us the eleven, and then I've asked you to look at the all round spot and the wicketkeeper in a little more detail. So I have started with an opening pair of Mark Lathwell and Wayne Larkins, Rob Bailey number three, Matthew Maynard number four, probably captain. I didn't give that too much thought to be honest. Uh, Neil Fairbrother five. All-rounder Kevin Curran, wicketkeeper Keith Piper, then the bowlers are Dean Headley, Gladstone Small, Duncan Spencer and Peter Such. But just on the spinner very quickly before we get to the all-rounder, I don't know, I, I'm sure, I mean, I can't imagine this. I'm sure I read in one of David Gow's books that in 84, when England were getting marmalised by the West Indies, that they were so desperate for leg spin that they actually discussed calling one out of club cricket because there were none in counter cricket, which I just think is the most extraordinary story and I'd love to know how that might have played out but anyway that's where 11 yeah all round the Kevin Curran and wicketkeeper Keith Piper both uncapped uh, at least for England so Kevin Curran um, father of course of uh, Sam and Tom and indeed there's, a, there's another son isn't there who plays yeah, for Northampton I think yeah Ben, ben Curran yeah. died at a very uh, early age young age tragically um, but uh, tell us a little about uh, Kevin Curran so it's all, it's a bit of a, a left field selection, partly because he didn't qualify until he was 35. But A, he tried to qualify earlier. Funnily enough, I looked into this. The day that Derek was taking a catch off Martin Crowe to win a thriller in Christchurch, Karen Curran was having an appeal rejected to bring his qualification forward two years. I mean, he's someone I only know through reports and kind of numbers, really. But his numbers are properly impressive. He was born in Zimbabwe, played for them in the 83 and 87 World Cup, qualified as a counter cricketer through an Irish passport, played for Gloucester, left a bit under a cloud, then went to North Ants. Over a 20-year career, he averaged 37 with a bat, 28 with a ball, scored big hundreds, you know, he could run through a team, career best seven for 47, four tempers, pretty much every description is hard-hitting. I mean, had he been available at 33, 32, I think he might have had a more of a chance, but even at 35... I mean, it's a bit of a flight of fancy, but if you think about it, at that age, that's from the Ashes Tour of 1984-1985. That's from Railingworth was in charge. Picked, you know, Gooch and Gatting, who were older. Uh, the following summer, he picked John Embry, who was 42. So I'm surprised it was never discussed. And apparently, I, I think he was only bowling sporadically then. Yeah, no, I was going to say... Rob, because he, he had, he had a lot of back problems. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's right. Chance. I actually looked, his, his bowling falls off in 94, but even then... He's still bowling a bit. When you look, England were so desperate for an all-round that they tried Craig White and they were kind of messing around with the structure. But even, you know, 96, he averaged 60 in first-class cricket. Normally, you wouldn't obviously encourage picking a 35. I just think in the in the Illingworth era, it wasn't beyond the realms. But yeah, it's a bit of a flight of fancy. But I think he was clearly a bloody good player. And he was clearly desperate to play for England as well because apparently he started putting in the who's who qualifiers for England in 1994 as like a plaintive you know, not quite a come and get me plea, but just a reminder. And the other thing is, you kind of think if qualification rules have been different, because I looked into this, because it changed all the time, you know. At oh, one point, it did. There, was, there was talk of Graham Hick wouldn't be available to 95, then it was going to be 89, and Kevin Curran the same. And I couldn't quite work out. I know he had that appeal turned down to qualify in 92. Didn't he, didn't he dabble with playing with Ireland? Oh, I don't know. I didn't find any mention of that. They changed, they changed the qualification rules, I think, to help Hick. Hasten. I think they chopped it from 10 to 7 years or something Yeah, like but that. he currently played in the 87 World Cup, which I think might have been a factor. 
But I just, everything I read about him, really, like I said, I know more through reports than anything, but like, Alan Lamb, who captained him at North Ant, said he always felt he was better than anybody else, and I like that. He'd always say, give me the ball if we needed a wicket, or I'll bat three. And the, the other thing, I suppose, is just that England was so desperate for an all-rounder around them that they're often fudging it with Alex Stewart and Jack Russell. And there weren't too many other options in the kind of early to mid-90s, certainly not to bat number six. But Derek's right, his bowling had actually faded because of his back by 94. But if you take him, I mean, in theory, he could have bent the rules that he played in 92. And in that summer, he's averaging about 28 with the ball. And all right, 25 with a bat, it was a bad summer, but... I don't know, yeah. as an opponent, Rob, I felt his bowling had gone off a long time before that, to be honest. Really? Was, That's interesting. Yeah, he, he, he wasn't bowling with any like, anything like the venom, actually, when he got to Northampton, whether it was the pitches weren't suiting, but he was, he was much zippier when he played for Gloucestershire. Do you think he could have batted six at test level? Well, he's, he's a decent batsman, there's no doubt. Um, six where in both of them used to bat, so not sure maybe by today's standards he'd be a six. Hmm. Out of interest, why, why would you pick him ahead of Mark Elaine, for argument's sake, who was a pretty useful seamer, could score big runs in, at that time, um, who was, you know, demonstrably a, a good captain as well. Why would you choose Kevin Curran over uh, Mark Well, <laughs> partly I just wanted to have a mix of kind of stories, you know, some where you think, you know, have missed opportunities. Some, and I had it in my head that I thought of Curran for the 94-95 Ashes series, when I was, you know, some lonely nerd picking teams in my bedroom. <laughs> so I looked into it, and then the more I kind of dug into it, the more I found that he would have been available. And it's only, I mean, it is a bit of a flight of fancy, but I do find it interesting in the context, mainly in the context of railing worth being chairman of selectors, because he loved two things, really, an all-rounder and an old man. Um, and Curran, <laughs> yes, exactly. was, Curran, Curran exactly. was both. So I'm just surprised it wasn't discussed more. When he first came on the scene in, in the early 80s, or a lot of reports say, you know, one day he'll potentially play for England. But then the qualification rules just get so mixed up. It's more about had he had the qualification rules been changed and had he been available a bit earlier than I think... Because when, when did he and Botham kind of... And he played his last test in 92, but he was kind of on his way out of the team from 87 onwards and they're kind of searching yeah, from then. Exactly. I think... Can I just interject just one question, which I'm not directing purely at Pring, but it's more of a general thing, I suppose. During that era, a lot of people qualified to play for England. How does the, the team, how did the team remember feeling about a Martin McHaig, say, ahead of a Dean Headley, for argument's sake, or, you know, something like that? Do people I have think, trouble with that? I think some of the true Braun Brits that did worry about things like that a little bit. But obviously, I, I couldn't worry about it. I came from Nairobi in Kenya, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although my parents are British. But, but in terms uh, of sensing it around the circuit, do you think there was a little bit of, amongst the players, a bit of agitation, shall we say? A bit of. Yeah, I think, I think there was. I think there was, yeah. I'll just wrap up the Kevin Curran discussion because we were talking earlier about first impressions of Alistair Brown. I, I remember seeing Kevin Curran playing for Gloucestershire in a, in a B&H game, I think, on the, on the telly, or maybe I was there, I can't remember. And he was a big, sort of blonde Southern African. And. I remember very, very clearly thinking, well, he's not as good as Mike Proctor. And I've, <laughs> I've never been able to shake that. Now, you know, almost everybody who's ever played the game, with the possible exception of Sobers, isn't as good as Mike Proctor. So, you know, it was a bit harsh, but that's the kind of first impressions that we were talking about earlier. And as soon as I saw that name on your list, Rob, the first thing that came to my mind, not as good as Mike Proctor. Uh, yeah, but, I, I, played enough, against, I played against him in 1976 uh, when he was playing for Mashonaland Schools and he was a leg spin bowler. 
Really? So we'll go to your wicketkeeper, Rob, who was also my wicketkeeper and one of the uh, Dermot Reed disciples, Keith Piper. Yeah, this was a tricky one because the two main contenders in the 90s, certainly, Jack Russell and Alex Stewart, were so good in different ways that you can't really complain. Probably the biggest regret is that England didn't pick them both and settle on Alex Stewart as a world-class opener. But I wanted to mention Keith Piper just because it seems kind of unfair that someone who was that good at wicket-keeping, didn't win a single cap. I mean, you talk to most people and they'll say he was on a par with Russell as a keeper. Alan Donald uses the old line about, you know, the ball melting into his gloves. The funny thing is, the thing he worked hardest on by far was his batting, but it just never came particularly naturally. His first-class average was ended at 19.99, which seems unfeasibly cruel, you know, particularly in an era where batting was becoming more important to be that close. So you could always say he averaged below 20. So he went on a couple of A-tours, kept immaculately, you know, I was reading Simon Hughes' tour report of the A-tour of India in 845, says he's as good as any keeper in the world. The interesting thing is that both Brian Lara and Bob Warmer, who were with him at Warwickshire, tried to persuade him to play for qualify for West Indies in South Africa. And he thought about, he said he didn't particularly like the political situation in South Africa, even after... They were out of isolation, but he thought about West Indies trying to qualify, and he, but he said ultimately he wanted to play for England. As a Kemp fan, Warwickshire were our absolute nemesis in the early to mid-90s, would always be at in quarter and semi-finals. And I remember him taking one, an absolute blinder, I think it was off Graham Cowdery, in a Nat West semi-final, like high above his head, it was live on BBC, as Kemp were having their familiar collapse to lose by like eight runs or something, which we always seem to do. Yeah, it just seems, I mean, I don't think it's a great, what might have been in the sense that Jack Russell was probably an equivalent keeper and a slightly better batsman. And then you had the Alex Stewart option, who was a, a brilliant keeper and a very good batsman as a keeper and a great batsman and not a keeper. But I just think for, to be that good and not play a single test seems a bit of a shame, really. He, he often actually became more of an asset in one-day cricket, even though he wasn't a great batsman, because he could stand up to the seamers. Paul Smith, Tim Bunt and Gladstone even stood up to Sean Pollock. I mean, how good do you have to be to do that? Rob, I'm just going to give you a brief time because we've had many conversations in the past about a name that perhaps some listeners won't recognise, which is Duncan Spencer. <laughs> yeah, um, Rob talked about falling in love when he first saw, I think it was Mal Loy, and it was like that for me with Spencer, really. He was, ultimately, he may never have been that good, we'll never know, he had all kinds of back problems, but he was lightning fast. Ricky Ponting said he, uh, Spencer had shown him the fastest players he ever faced. He was from Western Australia, but he played for Kent under Daryl Foster through some kind of passport, I forget. Uh, he was quite confrontational. Him and Ponting really did come close to blows at one point in a game in the early 90s. But they just, you know, nothing's more exciting than raw pace, particularly when you're younger. And Kent had a run to the, well, they, they finished second in the Sunday League in 93. And on that run, he was had some amazing performances. I remember one over against Surrey, where it was something like, went for 14 and took two wickets. They lost the title, decided to Glamorgan when he had his great famous duel with Viv Richards. There's a quote that often goes around that Viv said he was the fastest bowler he ever faced. I'm not strictly sure that's true, but he was certainly extremely impressed by him. It's hard to know because there's no speed gun, but I think you're talking 95 plus at his absolute peak. His overall record isn't great, you know, average 38. He was still learning the game, really. And there were times when he could run through teams and there were times when he could spray it all over the place. Then he had more and more back problems. Came back in 2001 in Western Australia, just as a one-day player, and then failed a drug test. He will tell you he was unfortunate and knew nothing about it. Yeah, it's just a classic what might be, really, and it, just in a way that, just more than anything, just because of pure pace. It was just so exhilarating to watch him in those Sunday games. I remember... 
Um, is it David Ward who used to play for Surrey? I remember that yeah, over when, yeah, yeah. when he got 14. And just seeing his stumps absolutely flying. Um, and Spencer almost won that game against Glamorgan. He had Viv caught off a no ball very dubiously on height. Um, and in the end, Viv, you know, he was 41 by then, but he saw it through and it was a amazing, famous day for Glamorgan. But yeah, Spencer kind of always lived with me at some level and I managed to track him down in 2014, 15, I think. And he's working in the mines now in Perth. That's where he came from originally. Um, and you talk, you His see... facts got better then, Rob. <laughs> well, yeah. You see, you see a lot of things. Um, people are talking about facing him in club cricket, you know, teams who wouldn't play against him, that he was that quick. Whether he'd ever been a great, I genuinely don't know because he hadn't learned the game, essentially, when he started to break down. So, But I think it's just there's always a romance, isn't there, in the lost fast bowler. Yeah, that and being a Kemp fan, that's why he'd be on my team. And he was talked about brief, very briefly for England. He was in Railingworth in his book, you know, he did his diaries of his time as England manager. When he took over, he had a list of about 70 potential players. This is when he first took over and Spencer was among them. But somebody who wasn't in the 70 coincident, it was Joey Benjamin who played by the end of the summer, which showed how broad the kind of selection <laughs> process was at the time. But yeah, I, I always kind of have fond memories of Spencer and um, it is why I would recommend anyone who hasn't, isn't familiar with him, just type in, you know, Viv Richards, Duncan Spencer. There's a great highlights package on YouTube of that day at Canterbury. And it is really, really, yeah, exhilarating to watch. When you brought up Duncan Spencer, I remember immediately thinking of uh, Stuart Meeker, who had a kind of mm, similar thing. Yeah. I thought he had that ability, that potential. And again, you know, back problems, whatever. You know, plowing fast for a living isn't easy. Yeah, I, I, was, I, I spoke to Daryl Foster about it once. He said, Daryl Foster used to rate people, what was it for? I think it was for skill, character and something else. Anyway, he said the only person he gave 10 out of 10 for all three was Dennis Lilly. And Lilly, of course, had worked and worked like you wouldn't believe to recover from stress fractures. And he said Spencer, though he did his work, he didn't quite have that same kind of relentless obsession as Lilly. And, I played yeah. against Duncan Spencer a couple of times and I think the feeling we got about him... Um, just from from a very small sample size, is that if you got on top of him a little bit, he got very downcast very quickly. And, and yeah, little, it went to pieces a little bit. He still bowled quick, but you know he bowled a lot of bad balls. Yeah, there are days when his his figures are a real mix. You know, even second eleven, there's one where it's like six for ten or something. Another day, not for one hundred and ten. There is a real mix of good and bad. I mean, my version in almost exactly the same terms as you described there, uh, Rob. My version of Duncan Spencer was Andre Van Troost, who I just thought <laughs> yeah, was yeah. such was an terrifying. exciting bowler. Uh, Derek, did you play against Van Troost at all? Yeah, I remember the only time I think Essex played against him, he, he ran into bowl, and I think he bowled two or three balls, and suddenly there was this huge scream, and he was and he was stretched off with a yeah. bad back. Yeah. He, had, he had a propensity for beamers, didn't he, I believe? And he also he, he broke Jimmy Adams' jaw, not with a beamer. Yeah, I'm not sure he knew tour. where it was entirely going. Yeah. <laughs> I think of all the kind of shambolic fast bowlers, the whole thing about if you don't know where it's going, no one else with. It sounds like Van Trost was absolutely top of that list. I think Mark Butcher talks about one spell when he was on and um, Butcher basically just wanted to get out of there as quickly as he could. He's a really successful businessman now, I think, Van Trost, which which is interesting because he sounds like he had a certain malevolent streak in him as well. We'll move to um, the Derek Pringle uh, 11 and indeed more discussion of bowlers. So Derek... Well, I, I, I based this on a complete mishmash of selectorial styles. I looked occasionally at the figures, and then I applied the Duncan Fletcher thing, you know, those who've got a talent spot, you know, the, the figures perhaps don't match up to the best in the, in the county cricket, but, you know, you think they're a good talent. And then, and, and finally, in Botham's uh, uh, way of doing things, which is to pick the good eggs. <laughs> so, so um, 
I'm going to go um, opening up with Wolf Slack and Martin Moxon, Rob Bailey at three, Alan Wells four, Matthew Maynard five, Paul Smith six, Jeff Humpage seven, Wicked Keeper, Richard Ellison eight, Dean Headley nine, Steve Watkin ten, and depending on how many left-handed and right-handers there are in the opposition, either John Charles as my spinner or Peter Such. Fantastic. Uh, well, I'm, going to make Mox, I'm going to make Moxon a captain. And I've asked you to look particularly at the, the bowlers. So um, I never got... saw that email, actually, Gary, ah, but I, I don't right. mind talking about the bowlers. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so if you, can, if you can lead us through your, your bowlers, well, you've got four in an all-rounder. It's interesting that, uh, well, Paul Smith's my all-rounder. I'll maybe yeah. come back to him. But um, I see Dean Headley makes it in all lists, and, and I think you know he was one of the unluckiest people, really, regarding him because I thought he was a fantastic bowler whose career was curtailed by uh, an injury. Which uh, you know, I was present at at the time. And I remember having a you know, we chatted to the England physio, and he said, "Oh, it's just he's just strained a rib." Well, it was career-ending injury. So, how that how that came from a strained rib, I ne- I'll never know. And uh, I'm sure Dean Headley doesn't really know to this day. But anyway, it, it poor, the poor guy never really got back on track. Um, but uh, and I'm and I picked those bowlers really to play in the modern era rather than their own era, it's because you know I haven't got an out and out. 93 mile an hour pace man because I don't think you need them these days because the pitches seem a little bit more sporty and opposition's defensive techniques don't seem as tight uh, so therefore I, I've gone for skillful bowlers uh, who, who can get it in the right area as they say and and he's 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 one of them and he's probably extremely skillful and and fast enough to hurry the best also in that role, I considered Norman Cowes, which I, I know um, Rob Rob Steen has picked, uh, and also Paul Jarvis and Greg Thomas mm. yeah. to add a, add a yeah. bit of pace. But uh, in the end, I went with Dean because I thought he was the classiest of that of that uh, cohort. Steve Watkin, I reckon, was Glenn McGrath before Glenn McGrath, and and may well have been nearly as good if he just had his, a bit more self belief. Um, uh, he was extremely accurate, hit the seam and had the ability to do the donkey work if required, as well as a strike if the conditions allowed it. So uh, he's a sort of uh, all-round performer there. Can I ask you, uh, before you go on, um, yeah, I'm sure. interested, because Steve Watkin was obviously another person in, in my head while all this was going on, and Neil Foster as well. And I just wondered why... why well, I couldn't felt... pick Neil Foster. He played 29 tests. I mean, I, unlike you, oh, okay. Rob, I've, 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 <laughs> unlike you, Rob, I've cut off at 15, because 25 is quite a lot of tests, you know. Well, no, I, I no, absolutely accept it. But the, the question I was going to say is, why Watkin ahead of Martin Bicknell? More what, zip, what did I'm Watkin afraid. More, more, more zip, zip, more yeah. zip, more zip. I mean, Bicknell's fantastic bowler, great control. But I think if you did come across a flatten, he wouldn't be very effective. And, you know, I, I, I hold myself in the same sort of area as that, you know. Martin Bicknell and I were roughly the same pace and, and did roughly the same thing. And, and I know, from, you know, Certainly, in the era that we played, although as, as I said, this, these are for the modern era. You know, some of those test pitches they weren't giving us any help whatsoever, and so therefore you're not very effective. Um, anyway, my, my next bowler, um, Richard Ellison, and you know, I've I've known Ellie since we were schoolboy rivals, and I've I know what a fine bowler he is. You know, he's there in case the ball swings, and if the ball swings, he's going to clean up because uh, once it arcs. And also think that in the modern era, central contracts would have helped someone like him just become a a little bit fitter and, and to maintain the snap that swing bowlers need to, to be effective. Can I just ask about Ellison? Because he, he got in my 11 as well. I, I can understand why he wasn't necessarily a pick overseas all the time, but I could never understand why he wasn't picked more often in English conditions. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't agree more. But uh, 
I, I don't know why. I mean, he, he seemed to think that against sort of Australia and New Zealand, he did well. And against the likes of India and Pakistan and the West Indies, he didn't do very well. So <laughs> he thought that sort of limited his appeal somewhat. But also he had bad luck with injuries as well at the same time, didn't he? Yeah, he had a few, he had a few injuries. Nothing, nothing. Did he, he wasn't out for a long period, though, was he? I, but I, think it cost, I think it cost him at least one tour. Right. Okay. Um, that, that's one thing. And I don't think he would fully fit yeah. in another of his tours. I you spoke know, to him the other really day, actually. Things. I should have asked him. I should have asked him about it. Can I also ask you about Norman Cowans? I mean, I look at his figures. First class figures, what was it? Um, 662 first class wickets are under 25, strike rate under 50. And his careers, test careers over before he's turned 25. Amazing. Now, it is, again, is he another guy? I mean, he had a bit different because here's a guy who um, was a bit cocky. He wasn't wasn't at all cocky. Well, maybe that's a different impression I had when I met him. I met him a lot down the years and maybe in the dressing room. My my take on it is, and obviously I didn't play at Middlesex, but my take on it is that that, uh, the the selectors could see how quick he could bowl. But I think Norman worked out that if he was going to have a long career, he couldn't sustain bowling flat out. Especially category, he played a lot of cricket then, so yep, he, yep, cut, he cut his pace. And on, on nibbly county pitches that nibbled around a bit, you know, he was extremely effective. But again, I think the selectors thought if he's not going to bowl at full pace, then you know we're not going to pick him for Test. Fair point in that case. <laughs> Bow to your greater knowledge. Well, that's my impression. I, I didn't sit down around the selectorial table, but you know, <laughs> I suppose that's another area where again central contract would have changed. I guess exactly, not so exactly. great. Oh, indeed. There's a lot, a lot of players who have benefited from central contracts. I mean, you know, yeah. I think others always points out, you know, because people will say to him, you know, you didn't captain a very successful England side. Others, he said, yeah, we didn't have central contracts. It'd been a bit better with central contracts. And then finally, um, my spinners. Well, John Charles and Peter Such both play with them at Essex. Both fabulous bowlers. Um, again, both of them, I think, would have been better, you know, if, along with Steve Watkin, if they'd have had a bit more self belief. You know, very talented, very accurate, and 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 spunnable a lot. I mean, John I'm Charles surprised. was picked. Sorry, John Charles was picked. Well, he was quite old by that time, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and and it was against the West Indies, and yeah. it was still a fantastic side then. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I captained him funnily enough in that that final test at the Oval in 1988 because Gooch had to go off with a split finger, and you know, it was just gripping occasionally. Yeah, and we thought, well, if if, if Charlie bowls, you know, his nickname was Charlie, Charlie Charles. If he bowls well, you know, we, we might just have a sniff here. We might just have a sniff. But Carl Hooper sort of put pay to that little cameo, sort of knocked him off his length pretty quickly. <laughs> and uh, it was just a shame, really. I think a more aggressive spinner might, might have perhaps um, made a better fist to that, those conditions and that situation. Uh, Rob, you were going to say? No, I was just going to say, I was always, always surprised that Peter Such only played 11 tests. I thought he look the part in most of them, really. I wonder if it's just that England were always searching for something a bit more exciting, you know, whether it was leg spin in Ian Salisbury or Phil Tuffle. I know how good Phil Tuffle could be, but I think there's an argument that across the 90s, such was certainly more reliable. Yeah, and I'm just I just very surprised. He ended up with 37 wickets, 34, which is pretty good. Did well against Australia, both home and away. Um, I suppose his batting counted against him, which is where Robert Croft would have been ahead of him as much as anything but I was surprised to see that he'd only played 11 tests I thought it would be near like you know 2025 at least I'm interested that Pring, that Pring has chosen two spinners for a, t- a team to play today 
no, no, it's one or the other. It's not two in the same. Oh, I two. see. Sorry, I do beg your pardon. I said, depending on how many left-handers, right-handers are in the opposition. It's all about the yeah. matchups. I've, I've cheated a bit. Cheated a bit. <laughs> uh, Derek, can I just ask you about Paul Smith? Because again, I remember seeing him and thinking, you know, this guy is really quite sharp. Exactly. And, you know, Paul Smith and Jeff Humpage I picked because whenever Essex played against Warwickshire, they seemed to give us quite a lot of trouble. I mean, I looked at Paul Smith's figures. They're not they're not special at all. But, you know, nor, nor would Marcus Triscothic or Michael Vaughan's when Duncan Fletcher picked him. And again, I think he's someone who, you know, he had a bit of downtime with central contracts. You could work on him a little bit. I mean, he, he did exciting things with bat and ball. He, he, yeah. he, could, he could turn a game very quickly. And and you're right, it's a bit like Duncan Spencer in many ways. You know, it could be a horror show, his figures, or it could be pretty good when he bowled. Yeah, and he I was suspect, sharp. He was very sharp. I suspect quite a few He's, he's my shop uh... trooper. Shop trooper. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect quite a few of those runs were uh, top edges over the slip cordon from uh, Paul Smith. He was that kind of bowler. Um, Gary, can we get your 11, Gary? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll give you mine 11, and and then I just want to speak about one, uh, or two two of the players. So I went with John Carr, Steve James, Neil Fairbrother, Graham Barlow, Matthew Maynard, Dermot Reeves, captain, Keith Piper, Richard Ellison, Graham Stevenson, Andre Van Troost, and then a little bit of cheating, Gary Keady. uh, as a Lancashire fan. And I I just want to talk just about two of them there. Um... John Carr, I saw him play at uh, Lords in that kind of glorious two years he had. I think it was two seasons. One in particular, he scored a lot of runs. And he had a, a kind of very two-eyed stance. But I don't think I'd, I've ever seen a batsman before or since have that much time to play the bowling. It, he was just able to do what he liked with the bowling in that glorious period. I talk about him because, or I included him because... It seemed that England sort of oscillate between picking players too early uh, when they're they've not quite shown the form that's required for Test cricket, or leaving it too late and batsmen play batsmen in particular playing themselves out of form before they get their chance. And I just wondered, with some of the kind of roulette wheel selection that was around at that time, whether John Carr, if he had been picked for England, would he have made a success of it, and would he have? retired, I think, quite an early age to go into administration. I I would love to have seen him have a go. I think it's really interesting. I thought about John Carr on the basis of that one season along exactly the same lines as you. When do you pick a man who's in an absolute purple patch? I can't even remember what season it was, but it was an astonishing run of something like six or eight hundreds over a very short period of time. And I don't think I... Often when Lara had that first season with Warwickshire... I don't think I ever encountered a purple patch quite like that. And who knows if they might have picked him that that point, what he might have accomplished. But going back to your point about the career in administration, I think that was always the way John was going to go. I yeah. talked about it a lot because his father, Donald, Donald you know, yeah. and, and he, you know, it really, and, 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 you know, he knew, he knew about life after the game. He had to think about that the whole time. He never quite had that confidence that said, I can maintain this. So you, in a way, you had to pick him right there and then. Don't wait for it to, whether it was a fluke or not. You should have picked him then, if possible, and let him play then. He did seem a very um, streaky player in the sense that, you know, he, he went on a good streak and then a poor streak because I remember playing against him at Lords early in the season and he and he belted us all around the place and he got a quick 60. And then several you know games after that in the, in the next few years, he looked completely out of sorts. Did you find that happened more with players with unusual techniques? 
Never did a study on it, Rob, to be honest. But <laughs> I want Pete, data. Pete, Peter Willey always looked quite a good player, and he had a funny technique. <laughs> yeah, no, just thinking that, you know, Steve Smith has these five-year purple patches. Yeah. Well, I think if you've got if you've got a lot of working parts, it's like a golf swing. The, the more the more flourishes you've got to it, the more it, it goes out of sync when you're not feeling confident. Yeah. Uh, I think the other player that had a streak like that was, um, and you might remember... Rob Smith was David Fulton. He had a year he where he did. scored what a, a lot of centuries. Funnily enough, the one I was thinking of was Ed Smith, who was oh, Ed Smith. on yes. the back of an yeah, yeah. incredible run of centuries. It didn't quite work out. He, he made a really fluent 60-odd on his debut, which kind of backed up the theory, but then he struggled two more tests, and that was it. Got a dodgy LW and... Played across gone. it too much, a bit like Tom Wesley. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll... Back where it comes. We'll finish off with a player who appears in three of these 11s. And I think if you asked those who were around in the 80s and 90s to name the great lost talent of of English cricket, they would pick a man who actually isn't an Englishman in in Matthew Maynard. Anybody who saw him bat would say, you know, this is a this is a, a man who's looking at a hundred test career who's gonna score eight thousand runs and he's gonna get them quickly and it's gonna be exciting watching him do so. And yet it never really happened, did it? Well I, mean, I think, I, I think... I, I'm the sorry, can I just say because yeah. I'm gonna say no more on the matter after this. I never saw Matthew well I know I've made play a decent innings, so I'm gonna <laughs> kinda of opt out of this conversation. <laughs> I saw Glen Morgan a lot, but seriously I never saw him play an exceptional innings. Well uh, Derek I was, was going to well, I was going to say that um, he's one of those players that I think if if the top um, three or four did their job and gave him a good platform, then he'd, he'd he'd have probably played a lot more tests. You're right, but I think if he was asked to do, you know, show a bit of defensive technique, then I think that's where he would let himself down a little bit because he was a fantastic aggressive stroke player, but not not a good man at, at holding out and seeing it himself and his team through a difficult spot. He got a century on debut at the age of 19 against Yorkshire, and I'm pretty sure he got to the 100 with three successive sixes. If you're doing that at the age of 19, you've definitely got something. But he's another one who four tests played over like a four-year period. He always tells a story how his last test was in the West Indies, and he was 30-odd not out overnight, and Jeff Boycott said to him, he was with the tail, he said, don't give your wicket away, because if you get duck in the second innings, suddenly you're averaging 17 for the se- uh, 34 for the series rather than 17. Anyway, he gave his wicket away for the team, got out cheaply in the second innings, never played again. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, was picked. Uh, it's interesting, um, and, and probably others won't thank me for saying this, but uh, he, he always thinks, looking back at that, that because uh, that was his first um, series as captain out of it out, you know, on tour when they played the West Indies in '93, four, wasn't it? Um, mm, yeah. He always said that it was a mistake uh, to drop NASA for Maynard. Yeah, that's right, because they kept, I think they they played seven batsmen at the back end of the previous summer. Both NASA and Maynard had played, so one had to go. And then, yeah, then it ended up Maynard played one test and that was it. I think he came back in the, under Duncan Fletcher in the one-day team, but by then he was... Well, I think they felt that Maynard was going right. to fight fire with fire and it didn't really happen. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a, a mate of mine played uh, cricket for Bangor University up in North Wales and they came across, I think, a 15-year-old Matthew Maynard and he said he hit the ball harder than anybody he bowled to before or since. <laughs> He's this kid who's just smashing the ball around everywhere. But maybe that's the dream we have. Maybe that's the Neely Men 11 criteria, really, is that the, the ones who we thought could do it, the, the holders of our dreams, but uh, but never quite managed to, to make those dreams reality. 
So oh, that back pa- to Graham Barlow. Graham Go Barlow. on, Graham Barlow. Graham, yeah, oh, I always liked I him. Absolutely, but I loved watching him bat. He was a great field. Him and Randall, best cover fielders of the time for me. And when he made his debut, 76, I was so excited. I can't ever remember being more excited about, you know, somebody coming through the system like that. And yet he was clearly never up to the job, to be fair. No, I mean, partly it was the fielding why I got him in there, because I think he would fit in perfectly with the way cricket is played in 2021. Um, I also saw him make 177 at Southport against Lancashire. And again, these first impressions uh, yeah, yeah, do, yeah, do, yeah, stick, do stick with you. So um, we'll, we'll wrap up there. Any uh, thoughts that any uh, of our panel want to throw in at the end of our uh, pod now? Don't think no, so. just, I think we've no. had an exhaustive conversation. <laughs> we have <laughs> an exhaustive and perhaps even exhausting uh, conversation. Well, we hope uh, you've enjoyed our uh, discussion of both the Nehru Cup and our Neely Men's 11s. So it remains only for me to uh, thank uh, debutant uh, Rob Steen. Thanks very much, Rob. Pleasure. Lovely to meet you all. Yeah, hope to again. see you again soon. Uh, Rob Smythe. Thank you very much. And Derek Pringle. Cheers, Gary. Good job. Thanks very much. I've been Gary Naylor, and I hope you'll join us again uh, next time for the 80s and 90s Cricket Show. <laughs>